0: This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bauerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Hello, and welcome to Bendy
1: Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes. This is Jennifer Milner, here with co-host Dr. Linda Bluestein. And before we introduce today's guests, we'd like to first remind you, how you can help us help you. First, subscribe to the Bendy Bodies podcast and leave us a review. This is helpful for raising awareness about hypermobility and associated disorders. Second, share the Bendy Bodies podcast with your friends, your family, and your providers. We really appreciate you helping us grow our audience in order to make a meaningful difference. This podcast is for you. So this podcast, we're going to do things a little bit differently. This podcast marks the one-year birthday of Bendy Bodies. Happy birthday! (laughs) And we want to take this opportunity to introduce you to the Bendy Bodies team and hear from them. So Bendy Bodies is growing in exciting ways, and we want you to follow us on Instagram and Facebook so that you don't miss out on anything. Um, But we are Obviously, growing with team members, and we are going to chat with them today. The topic is caring for the adolescent artist, and we've got some experts in this field with us. First off, we have the founder and co host of the podcast, Dr. Linda Bluestein. Always happy to be at the microphone with you. And with you as well. Welcome, welcome back. And we are also chatting with Aiden Leslie, a former pre professional ballet dancer, a crazy bendy body and EDS Wellness Ambassador for Bendy Bodies. Aiden, lovely to have you here. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely, and then rounding out, this is another Bendy Body team member, nutritionist, Kristen Koskinen. We've been fortunate enough to have her share her expertise more than once on this podcast. Kristen, it is always awesome to have you here.
2: It's awesome to be here.
1: (laughs) So today's topic is one that is big in the arts and athletic world. It seems like dance, uh, circus arts, skating, gymnastics, what have you, is becoming more and more competitive at an ever earlier age. And we are demanding tricks and and schedules from 12 year olds that we weren't even requesting of professionals in the past. So on its own, that bears discussion. But when you add in training somebody on the hypermobility spectrum, the potential pitfalls just increase exponentially. So let's talk about some of these possible minefields and how we as parents and teachers and medical professionals can help these young artists to avoid them. Um, Aiden, I would like to start with you. Uh, when did you first notice that your body had uh, different requirements than dancers your age? And, and how did you deal with that?
3: Uh, I could, when I, especially when I was younger, I could do a lot more things than other dancers really couldn't. It was kind of a good thing when I was younger when I was you know five, six, and seven. I was you know always in the front line in the center doing a scorpion or some crazy extension. And it was really great because there wasn't a lot of strength being asked. It was more tricks and flexibility. And then as I got older, and especially once I started point and choreography started becoming more challenging, and more and more was being asked of me as a dancer, I started to notice that some of the other dancers were starting to excel at things that I was struggling with. One-legged releves terrified me. I just didn't have the structural stability on, the, on one leg to do on point. So when I started to be about 14 and I, I was starting to do more challenging roles, I started noticing that I couldn't keep up without putting in extra work outside of class or even modifying in class and rehearsal. So I was always sort of aware from a very young age that I could, my body had different limitations, but also different strengths than other people did. But it was once I started dancing on point and started to get a little bit older and, and more advanced within the ballet world that I started noticing that my body needed some extra help. And so what did you do about that? I started working with you, actually, Jennifer, you came to my studio post Nutcracker one season when I was 14. And you helped use we sort of did a recovery class with my company, and we really hit it off. So I approached you outside and said, Hey, I'm starting to do, you know, really challenging roles. Could you think you could help me to feel better about what I was getting myself into and what I was being asked to do. And I started working with you and I started, you know, getting into regular physical therapy sessions and I started getting into more cross-training classes. I was doing extra sort of cross-trained ballet exercise classes outside as well. So I started having to, to put in a couple extra hours, um, but also make sure that I was staying and working with good doctors who knew that, you know, rest was lots and lots of rest wasn't always the answer. And and lots of things I had to sort of find my right crew and my right team to help take care of me. Mm -hmm. And that was around age 14. Is that right? 14 or 15. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Linda, is this
1: something that you are seeing and that there are just dancers and athletes that need
0: professional intervention at earlier and earlier ages? Definitely. Exactly what Aiden described. I'm picturing in my mind a dancer that I danced with in college and um, she she was crazy flexible, but didn't have strength. And now I see as as a physician, what I see is dancers running into problems, very similar to what Aiden is describing at those young ages. And I think one of the big contributing factors is that the performing arts are so visual. And now we have literally at our fingertips, 24, seven, 365 days a year, we have access to all of these things. So we have things on, you know, Instagram and YouTube and reality TV shows and competitions. And, um, you know, when I was growing up and I was dancing, we didn't have access to these things. We didn't really see what other dancers were like until we went to auditions. And so I think now, Dancers are pushing themselves harder and harder and harder because they keep seeing these, these things. They're, you know, kind of in their face all the time. And, um, you know, so the, the level of competition, I think, just keeps um, escalating. And for hypermobile dancers in particular, um, exactly as Aiden described, they will ex- excel when they're younger Um, but then it can become more and more challenging, especially like when they go through puberty, puberty can be very um, difficult because of hormonal um, changes that happen and things like that. So it's very common. Mm -hmm.
1: So Kristen, you also work with a lot of adolescent dancers, um, in your practice, how do you see this population sort of as lacking proper nutrition or, or proper fueling even, and, and how can their, um, their support team help remedy that?
2: Well, when we talk about dancers who fall someplace along the spectrum of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, their issues may not just be related to fueling as we think of it for the artistic athletic component, but they can also be influenced by some of the GI symptoms that we see that come along with Ehlers-Danlos. So any number of what, what we might put under the umbrella of irritable bowel syndrome, so chronic Gut issues, tummy aches, that kind of thing, um, mast cell activation, any sorts of inflammatory diseases, as well as compounding this with the the image that they want to meet when it comes to being a dancer. And like Dr. Bluestein said, these images are in front of us all the time now. And in the dance world, it's been part of the culture and history, especially in the in the ballet realm. How, talk about line and thin and things like that so these dancers who really need to be addressing their body very specifically to help with um, connective tissue health to support the strength to support the extra training may be distracted by dieting so mm-hmm. their, their support team we're looking at it' it's a it's a much more robust request than maybe what we're looking at in a dancer who's not, who doesn't have these same hypermobile concerns.
1: So do you, with the people that come to you, Kristen, um, who may have GI concerns, right? Are you usually the first person that they are talking to about any issues with hypermobility spectrum? Um, I, I know that for my practice as a Pilates teacher and as a ballet coach, I'm usually the first person to say to them, well, you you know you're hypermobile, and have you considered that there might be more that you need to investigate? So I know, for most of the people that I work with, I'm the first person that's talked that that's had that conversation with them. Are you usually that first person, Kristen, or has have have they already had that conversation with someone else and they've referred to you?
2: Mm, both. A lot of times. I'm the, sometimes with dancers, I am the first person. So if a dancer, for example, comes to me because they're, um, they're maybe a professional dancer or a pre-professional about making ready to make that transition and they're concerned about weight, or they've got this bloating that they just can't tend to. And as part of, um, as part of the intake process, I ask some questions and it starts to lead to, so you can touch your head to your butt and your thumb does this thing and you can do these circus tricks. (laughs) This, we may have some other underlying issues. Um, So that's a first thing. And, uh, and on the other end, a lot of times I'm the end of the rope person where they've tried everything else. Mm. And so it's, well, maybe we can, maybe it's a diet thing or, or it's a referral where, another professional, whether it's you or Dr. Bluestein or a physical therapist, notices that their client is at a stopping point with recovery or can't get any farther. And they know it's a food component and it's a nutrition issue. And so they come to me that way. So I I will say it's, it varies. I've seen it um, kind of all along that line.
3: Hmm. I have a question for you. I know I really struggled when I was about 15 and started trying to make it a bit more professional and getting inching towards that end goal. I couldn't put on muscle for the life of me. I was really struggling with reaching that point where I could start building muscle. And I started seeing a nutritionist and everything changed in like one summer. I started doing like upping protein and switching things around, focusing on hydration. So do you see a lot of dancers that have, problems putting on muscle as well, particularly hypermobile ones?
2: Yes, that is a big concern because they want to maintain muscle mass and they understand that this is part of strength. And absolutely. I see it not only with hypermobile dancers, but also with dancers who may be referred to me because of a diagnosis like scoliosis. And so we're, when we bring in those extra components of translating the idea of you need more protein to how can you make that work and how can you do that within your schedule, which is usually really busy. And if you're hypermobile and not only do you have class and rehearsal, but you also have, um, specific training, say with your ballet coach, Pilates and that kind of thing, the dietitian can help find solutions to make it work.
0: And I'm glad to hear that you were able to find someone who helped you work through that Aiden.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. I'm really glad Aiden brought that up. I just want to say that part of the challenge there is if you cannot put enough load through a joint to get the muscle to be stronger, then that's, you know, the nutrition component of course is essential, but that's also part of the problem is if the, if the um, tissues don't, can't sustain that load, then that the body gets stronger, not in the activity phase, but in the rest phase. Mm -hmm. So it has to be able to do the activity and then have the rest and rec- and recover. So that completely makes sense what you're saying, Aiden.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I see that a lot too. I'll have um, directors or teachers get in touch with me and say, she needs to build muscle, like put more muscle on her, make her build more muscle. And I'm like, I can't just make her build muscle. I can't just say, let's do 10 more hamstring curls than we did last time so that your hamstrings get bigger. Um, it's that, as, as you guys know, it's that sweet spot of pushing them enough, but not too much that they get injured and then they're out for three months, or um, not too much that they don't have time to recover properly from it, as you said, Linda. So it's, it's working with somebody who, who knows what that sweet spot is and not ignoring the nutritional component of it as well. It doesn't matter how, how healthy you are with your activities and your rest and all that if you're not fueling yourself in a way that's going to help your, your muscle tissue grow. Right. Um, So, Linda, we're, we're sort of talking about where on the scale we usually get people and where we see them, like at the beginning or at the end. Do people usually come to you after having been through three or four other different doctors or are you the first person that says, hey, there might be an issue like where do you usually see them?
0: So usually most of the people that I see already suspect that they have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or hypermobility spectrum disorder. They've kind of found this information themselves and they suspect that it might apply to them and then they stumble upon the podcast or other things that, you know, that I've done, that you and I have done, um, that the team is doing, and then they reach out for more information. Um, It's rare that I would be the first one to bring it up to them. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of times they have seen many, many, many other doctors and uh, many other specialists. I also get phone calls from, I had a call from a colleague this past weekend. He said, I saw three EDS patients in my clinic this past week, but I don't feel qualified to diagnose them. And so, you know, so I need to send them to you and, um, you know, or do you know anyone else in your area? And I said, well, I know someone in Madison, but I don't know anyone else like in this immediate area. So finding somebody, um, with that expertise definitely can be challenging. It can be. And I think it's even
1: harder when it is, um, an adolescent, right. A minor and the parents may or may not know enough about what's going on to even know what questions to ask. So um, so Aiden, we were working together when you first started kind of figuring out, you knew something was different. You knew something was wrong and that you needed outside help. So you sought outside help. We started working together. I started referring you out. At what point did you kind of find that strength or courage or whatever it is to start advocating for yourself um, in the classroom as well, and not just saying to your mom, I need help, but being able to speak up in the classroom and say, No, I'm not doing that again. Or that's too many roles or what, which most people are like, Oh, no, too many roles. Oh, but you know what I mean? That's, that's too much work for me to be doing. Where, where did that come up? And how hard was that?
3: It's sort of a twofold. It it was sort of two things had to happen simultaneously for me to get there. The first was that it reached a point where I was managing and I was doing well with all my outside help, but there reached a point where I was learning eight roles in one Nutcracker performance and all of this outside stuff and all these rehearsals, and I physically couldn't do it. I knew that if I wanted to reach that end goal of performing on stage, I had to do something and adjust something and and modify and advocate for myself in the classroom and rehearsal period so that I would make it to the end. But also when a a really sort of the the more difficult aspect of that was it didn't really I didn't reach the the needed maturity level to start advocate really, really advocating for myself on a pretty much daily basis until I started having teachers whose teaching style and maybe their preferred ballet sort of technique did not work for my body. And then when suddenly they were asking me to do specific steps or stretches or combinations that my body couldn't handle, I started having to step up and say, can I not do this? Can I not do that? Can I mark this stretch? Can I not jump today so that I can do six hours of rehearsal afterward? And it really came down to that I needed that. I just couldn't work with that particular technique constantly and still do what was asked of me. So it it was a twofold between both of those things happening. And it was very difficult. No no dancer wants to stand up and say, hey, can I not do this? I think everyone's (laughs) terrified of the repercussions of what if I get this role taken away? What if they don't use me again? And that can be terrifying. But I had to remember that if I didn't start speaking up and it wasn't big things, I wasn't asking, can I not dance for three weeks and then do the performance right after? It was little things here and there. And I had to remember that I was doing this so that I could go on stage and be my best and Mm -hmm. do what was being asked of me and do it better maybe than they were thinking I could do it in the first place. So Mm -hmm. I had to keep that in mind and it was definitely challenging. But if I kept that in mind and I sort of stayed respectful and just did the best that I could, I made it work.
1: Well, and it's it's very scary for any teenager to speak up to a person in a position of authority, right, and to say, I don't think that this is safe or it's right for me. I mean, it's hard for any for any child or youth to do, um, but add into it somebody in the artistic world. If you're a dancer or a gymnast or a skater, we're, we're trained so unconditionally to obey our coaches and to obey our teachers and to listen to them and do what they're saying. And a lot of times, have to have conversations with parents and remind them that they're paying the people right that you are submitting yourself to someone else's authority but you are also the boss because you're spending that money so if you're gonna spend that money you should submit to their authority right you can't just pick and choose what you're gonna do and not do but you also have to say I can choose whether or not I'm going to submit myself to this authority and I mean I've had dancers with EDS in classes where the teachers just give crazy back strengthening. I'm sure you can picture some of them, back strengthening exercises, and I've just had to say you you can't do those. And she said, Well, how do I not do them? And I said, Well, you just tell the teacher no. (laughs) Like you do it respectfully, you don't do it in the middle of class, right there at the time, but you walk up before class and say these exercises that you do, I've been advised not to do them may I please sit out, I will work with my trainer to come up with alternatives that I can do while you do these, or something respectful. But to speak up to a teacher and say, I don't wanna do that, that's a huge, that's a huge um, step for a lot of people to take, I think. And um, and as we're as we're looking at sort of advocating for yourself, Linda, what about parents who say, there is something wrong with my child, or not wrong, but there is something different about my child, right? Um, I have no idea what to do about it. I just know that they always seem to feel not good. They always seem to be on the verge of getting injured. They seem to tire more, more often.
0: What would you suggest to them? What are their next steps? How can they get help? Before I answer that question, I just want to um, piggyback on what Aiden said. And Aiden, you're, it's fascinating to me. It's, you're so wise. Mm -hmm. It's so amazing what you did, because I think the other thing is as dancers, and gymnasts and so many other performing artists, we don't use our voice. You had to find your voice and advocate for yourself in a way that a lot of us as adults don't even do. So, you know, you should really give yourself a pat on the back that, um, you know, that you were able to do that. That's, that's really amazing. Thank you. Yeah. It's really, (laughs) really, really amazing. And um, getting back to your question, Jen. So I think that really it, depends on where the person is at, but for a lot of people, um, forming, I, I, I originally said team, but I like Aiden's word crew better because I feel like that translates better into the performing arts world. So find your crew. And your crew should be headed up by your primary care doctor. So if you're under 18, you probably have a pediatrician. If you're over 18, you might have an internal medicine or family medicine doctor. Well, if you're under 18, you could have a family medicine doctor also. But that crew should be headed up by the captain of the team. Well, technically, I guess it's you, the captain of the team. But the next person um, after that would be whoever your primary care physician is. And then the other people that I think are critical to have on your team are, um, number one, somebody related to movement. So that could be a physical therapist. It could be a Pilates instructor. It could be you know a gyrotonics instructor. It could be an athletic trainer. It depends on what the needs are of that particular um, artist or athlete. So um, that's important movement, having somebody coaching you and how to move well, because we want to make sure that we are using um, good movement patterns and things like that. So we're not harming ourselves um, because one of the keys is to keep moving. And then the second thing is addressing modifiable risk factors. So things like nutrition are hugely, hugely, hugely important. So sometimes a nutritionist is absolutely one of the key people that it's going to be on your crew. Um, Other modifiable risk factors would include things like sleep, good quality sleep is very, very important. Um, And then the third person that you want to have on your crew, and I picture this kind of in a triangle because these things are all interrelated, would be um, related to the mind. So whatever you need to do in order to have yourself as mentally healthy as possible, because the mind and the body are, are absolutely um, connected. What happens in the mind affects the body and vice versa. So we want to make sure that whether it's you know support groups or you know finding a community that helps meet your needs, um, a counselor, psychiatrist, whatever it is that you need in order to be mentally healthy. And I think that from there, you may or may not need specialists on your crew, but I think that's a good you know kind of starting point that's great and i love
1: that image of the triangle as well and so you're trying to hit all of the types of things that um the different ways that that you need to take care of yourselves um speaking of the mental health aspect of it Kristen, i wanted to come back to you Um, we've talked in the past about how um, people with hypermobility have a higher incidence of anxiety of ocd of tendencies towards disordered eating And so when you add dancers into that or any kind of artist, there's always going to be that higher risk. So as you are trying to work with with dancers and you see them somewhere on the hypermobility spectrum, is that kind of in the back of your mind thinking, let me look out for any warning signs for disordered eating? Or do you see it coming up more often? Is there advice you can give parents on what to look for as they are trying to move through this and, and figure out how to help their their hypermobile
2: artist? I always have the filter. When I'm working with any artistic athlete, any athlete, I always have the filter that disordered eating may be playing a role. With dancers, absolutely. And for parents, it can be so challenging because. Young people, especially adolescents, which a lot of times, like when we hear Aiden, it was fine until it wasn't. And so as you hit those, you know, adolescent years, that's when they move in. And also psychosocially, as kids reach adolescence, they tend to start to explore their independence from their parents. And so when parents are reaching out to help, sometimes kids pull away. And that can be a very Timely, um, it can be very timely at that point for parents to bring in other people for their kids to talk to and communicate with. And when we look at it, it's this idea of a wheel, the crew. These are components that any any dancer should have on board: strength training and movement, um, PT, your primary care, nutrition. Site. these are all things that every dancer should have. And so as we normalize that in the regular dance world, and we can look to say the Royal Ballet School as the, the flagship of that. And as we, as, as a group, bring that together and say, this, this isn't just because you have this condition that makes you special. Really, we wanna see this with all dancers. So if you're a dancer, we really want you to see, um, we want you doing, you know, strength or cross-training. We want you seeing the dietitian. We've got counseling available. That's probably a good idea too. And bringing it all in. So that's an approach I like to take, um, because oftentimes it is the parent leading with concerns and coming to me and maybe a reticent kid in the background saying, I don't need help. Leave me alone, you know, peace out. So, um, so the, the bigger, so sometimes it's a, a conversation I have just with the parent. And then we decide if a kiddo, the client is interested, or if they have a point of interest, where interest, what's an entry point for that person? So it may not, it may be about strength. It's which, you know, is it strength? Oh, am I going to get bulky? You know, are you going to make me fat? Are you going to, you know, is the weight trainer? No, no, no. This is about strength. As you know, just bring it back to what Dr. Bluestein said, it's about strength and and coordinating these efforts and bu- bringing in building blocks. If it's about bloating and they're concerned that I, you know, I eat and I got these GI issues. Food runs right through me. I get sick, I, I eat and I swell up, but it's not an allergy. Mm-hmm. We can address those if that's a primary concern. if If they come and they're concerned about their weight, this may be an opportunity for us to talk about some of the other things. So we take what's available and work with that point of interest for the client. Sometimes the parents, and sometimes parents, you know, should always be involved in the care of their child. And sometimes they may decide it's better to let the kid have one-on-one time so they can be authentic and get the help they need. Um, and sometimes it's, and sometimes we say, you know, today it's, it's time for a team meeting because we have to have this crew and mom, dad, guardian, are integral to to the success of these things
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i do see that independence that you're talking about that um i know the dancers will sometimes have discussions with me that they won't have with their parents that they don't want to talk about with their parents and and it's finding that balance for me of of creating a space where they can have those conversations um without It being so isolating, you know, it's great if the parents on the other side of the room or something and, and the kids feel free to talk about it and sometimes they'll float up test balloons in their conversations where I know there's bigger things that they want to talk about. Um, And as far as my scope goes, I'll be very honest with them and say you can you can tell me whatever you want to tell me and I won't repeat it to your parents unless. I think that it's something that's gonna harm you or someone else. So if you wanna tell me how mad you are at your parents and how much you hate them for making you go to bed at 10 o'clock, I won't repeat that. But if you have harmful thoughts, then we are gonna to have to have that conversation. So when they float those test balloons, I know that it's time to have that conversation with the parents and then the parents can find someone else to have a conversation with too. So you're right, it's really tricky at that age to find, to find people that they want to talk to <laughs> When as a parent, you're like, just tell me, just tell me and I'll help fix it for you. Because that's what we've been doing our whole lives for those kids. And, and it's so important as a teenager to have that pit crew because they're not going to be your kids forever. And it's important to teach them how to have their own pit crew and how to get out there and find their own specialists and, and, and give them the independence to be able to make those, those decisions and, and, and things for themselves. Um, Aiden, I wanted to ask you, you no longer dance. So at what point did you decide to stop and and what was that transition like? And what do you wish had been there for you that wasn't there for you? Was was there anything you wish you had done differently or there had been some sort of a support? Or how did you feel about that transition?
3: I stopped dancing when I was 18. Uh, I think about six months before, I like to say I hit the EDS wall where I was doing fine. I had some couple symptoms, some joints that didn't want to stay in the socket, some things like that, but some pain. But when I hit that wall, it was everything went wrong and everything went wrong immediately. I started having a constant headache, like a migraine type headache. I started having more joint subluxing than normal. I started having GI issues. It just all started to swarm. And for a few months, I still tried to dance, not nearly to the level that I had been. I was in January that I started getting sick and uh, I had summer program plans that I had to quietly leave behind and things like that. And I had planning to, to try and dance professionally. And I sort of had to step it back and go from dancing 25 hours a week or more to trying to do one to two classes a week just to see if I could handle it. And I did about six months of trying to make that work. And I remember going to very low level. I think I was 18. I was in classes with 11-year-olds just trying to stay afloat and trying to keep doing it. But I was so limited with my headache and what my body was feeling. I couldn't jump. I couldn't turn. I really couldn't do center. I, could do, I couldn't do. I could do port de bras, combray depending on your schools, forward or backward. I was so limited. I could pretty much do plies and tondus. And I love plies and tendus, but those also hurt my body too. So I reached a point point. I remember getting, and I, everyone was doing port de back and I was just standing there. And I thought it's not worth it anymore for me. It, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't for me anymore. I didn't, what I loved about it, I could no longer do. And my body was sort of screaming for me to stop. So I retired when I was 18. And at the time, immediately in the days after My body sort of had a couple days that it just felt so much better. My hips weren't hurting as much. My knees weren't hurting as much. And I thought, why didn't I do this sooner? My body feels so much better. And then those few days passed and everything that had been hurting came back. I still had joints that were subluxing. I still had my headache. I still had my GI issues. So... I, I'm still very happy with where I left it. I think I gave it everything I had. I I I didn't. I never for a second pulled my punches. And I did all the outside training and I did everything I could, but my body couldn't do it. And I know it's a very personal choice and it's very personal based on everyone else's bodies when they choose to stop. But for me, I was very, very lucky because I had the support I needed. I had a fantastic parents that were willing to drive me to these ballet classes when I was so worried that I was going to get in there and make myself feel worse. That would feel terrible. And I was like crying on the way to class. And I had parents who would drive me and calm me down. I had, you know, you, Jennifer, who was helping me to feel as good as I could before I went in and keep managing myself outside. I had a nutritionist. I was working, trying to still get protein, even though I was having GI issues and all the other food groups I was working, I think with Dr. Bluestein at that point as well, trying to see any way I could really get in. And I was so lucky that I still had that support group, even when I stopped dancing, it was there, everyone was there for the whole transition, which was so good. I was so lucky to have that because it made the world a difference that Mm. even though I wasn't dancing, I wasn't going to class, I wasn't doing those plies and Tondus, I had that support system to help manage my body and my mind and kind of my soul in a way too, through that transition. So I I I I don't think I would have done anything differently in retrospect. I was very, very lucky I think I stopped at the perfect time for me. And again, that's a very personal choice, but I, I'm very proud and grateful of where I left it.
1: Well, Aiden, you're like the textbook example of the best possible case scenario of making wise choices and doing everything that you can and, and really doing things well and having an incredible support team and being content, knowing I've done everything right. And I have gone as far as I can Um, You did mention something about how you stopped and then you felt great and then you didn't feel great. And I was wondering, Linda, do you see that a lot when people who are very active think, oh, I'm so active and I'm in so much pain, I'll stop and I'll feel better. And when they stop, they actually realize they feel
0: worse. I, I do. And and the other thing that I think is really challenging is that sometimes we were talking about mast cell activation syndrome just very, very briefly, whether it's um, related to that or things that are going on um, otherwise in the tissues, more musculoskeletal type things, like with a sunburn that we don't feel while we're on the beach, we often don't feel what's happening in our bodies until afterwards. So I think that can make it um, you know, confusing sometimes. So yeah, I was super interested when Aiden was talking about that. That that is fairly common, and the the trick is finding to where the right amount of activity is for. For that individual person, because um, you know these conditions, um, whether it's Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or hypermobility spectrum disorder, um, they're so heterogeneous. So they're very, very different in each person. So what's right for one person is going to be very different than what's right for another person. So that's where, if you can, um, you know, like Aiden did, if you can. Get that crew and get things as individualized as possible, um, because what worked for someone else, um, maybe it's going to work great for you. But um, Kristen often says it's an N of one, which is so true. Um, you know, it's it's our, my body. No one else has the exact same body that I have. We, we all have similarities, but we definitely have differences too. So I I do see that, and um, I think that it's learning to listen to your body in the right way is is hugely beneficial Mm
1: -hmm. absolutely and and something that we just have to learn over time Mm -hmm. is how how to listen to our bodies and i haven't even learned that super well (laughs) still sometimes so it's a process it's a process yep (laughs) so kristen i know that you are a mom as well as an expert in in nutrition and i'm just wondering what does your mama heart say When, or what does your mama heart wish that these bendy bodies would know as you see them struggling with the issues that they have got?
2: Oh boy. Well, my mama heart reaches out to those parents too. Mm. And to know that there, there are resources available who are going to help you take care of your child and help your child take care of themselves, which honestly is one of the most important things and learning this, listen to your body know that there's help available and, and you, you are N equals one. So um, yeah. And how do, boy, it's, it's hard. Um, but there are, there are things we can do and we can teach um, knowing that your, your child can learn how to take care of themselves. And when it and I'll speak for what I do. That is, that is, it integrates everything. So when I'm talking about food for your child, it's not just, you need these nutrients to be strong and do the things it really goes far beyond that. Because as you've talked to, you know, as we were speaking before, there's this psychosocial component where kids want to be normal. Like they want to be like everybody else or their version of what, what they think that looks like. They want to be able to do the things. And so How, how do we, how do we address that? And that's going to be N equals one, you know, I don't know, that depends on your kid. And sometimes we need to weave things in how, you know, is there going to be a consequence for that? How can we make that work? What's really important? So something that came up with me at one point was, um, one of my dancers was we go through a lot of tissue in sessions. It's not uncommon. It's really emotional. You're, you know, when you talk about food and diet, it's, it, it reaches through your whole life. And she was really upset because she just wanted to go to Starbucks with her friends and do normal things. Like she wanted to go and do that normally. So we talked through it and and to her, that meant getting a certain drink. But when we talked through, it, it was like, is it being with your friends? Well, that's the real thing. So we got that. And then we found some options that actually worked for her. So she could go and not just like have a bottled water so that she could participate fully. And that I think for the parents means a lot because when you see your kiddo, emotionally hurting not just physically hurting sometimes those those emotional always those are the ones that we have a hard time healing especially as your child is moving closer to adulthood so giving them these tools to understand and some of the tools are this is your team now it may be your team forever it may be your proof for it may not but at least you know that um you also have a referral base so when you find someone who works for you they may know someone else who can help you out so um when you're for parents, when you're looking for people, I, I I recommend find someone who does have an integrative approach. Find someone who does refer out and has a team who can help your your kiddo. Find people who can spend the time and understand is this do it, you know, and and can treat your child as an individual. Sometimes mm-hmm. we're gonna have individual sessions, sometimes we're going to have group sessions and find someone who your kiddo feels comfortable with that's really important. If the, the child is the client, the child is the client. And so they need to want to communicate with this person. And if they don't then find someone else, let them be part of the interview process just because mom likes the person or dad likes the person that can be a good start, but really that the client needs to be comfortable with the provider. And then, and then we can go from there because we have to have a lot of, really good communication. Even when someone tells me their limits, it's really important that they can say, I'm not going to do that. Or this is what I'm willing to do. Or this is, I have this other thing, this other thing that is working against me. We need to have that level of openness and communication and your dietitian is probably going to be about the same level of comfort that you should have with your therapist or counselor, because Mm -hmm. there is a lot of overlap. So um, include your kid in the process. Find someone who's going to be able to take care of you know the the broad
3: spectrum. Mm-hmm. You made an excellent point there about the the psychosocial. I know especially from the sort of dancer perspective, and not necessarily the parent one, but the dancer perspective. We were talking earlier about having the courage to talk to your teachers, but there's also an innate level of courage of having to do things separate from your peers, and even if you're quote unquote breaking the rules, like I had to do quite a bit. You know, wear a leg warmer if that's for your ankle injury, even if that's against dress code. Or I remember I had to have, you know, we were only allowed to have water, but I had to bring in water that had electrolytes in it too. So it didn't really look like water. So that was breaking the rules. And I, even though it wasn't, and I had to, you know, I had special permission where I could, the other dancers had a little bit more strict stringent about what they could drink water, but I had permission to drink water whenever I needed it. In order to keep me, I remember I was doing snow and I nearly passed out in the exact same point, every run of snow and nutcracker. So I had special permission to sort of adapt a little bit. And that was terrifying at times when everybody else in the room was doing X, Y, and Z. And if I wasn't doing the particular step or I was doing something differently, I was the only one. And there was, you had to sort of deal, I had to sort of deal with that. And it was something I had to to learn how to manage because that was almost more terrifying than talking to the teacher. It's not just one person. It's, you know, the 32 other girls and boys around you. And they f- you feel like they're all looking at you, even though you know they're not. So that was something <laughs> that was terrifying for me. And I think it's so important to bring up.
1: That's true. And and it's not even the the official codified things like you need to wear a leg warmer. It's the things like when your friends say, hey, let's stay and practice our fuerte turns. And you know, your leg is shot. Or when they say, hey, let's do... 32 more um, on chicots and you can you're about to black out like you're starting to lose your vision or when your friends are texting at two o'clock in the morning and they're like let's just do 500 crunches right now so we'll look better and you're like I can't. (laughs) Right and you shouldn't either. Um, So even just the unwritten things like I remember when you were at PNB and and you would be on a break time a lot of your friends would go and get a smoothie and you knew that you couldn't waste your precious energy walking up the hill to go get a smoothie you would have that break time lying down with your legs up the wall and trying to give yourself that physical rest that you needed and so you're losing out on that social time and you're losing out on that chance to connect with your peers and be you know normal and and not be the different person who's always making a big deal um, so it takes strength and courage to learn to be that person. So again, kudos to you for, for as well as you did it.
0: <laughs> and, and, and sometimes you get conflicting advice. I, I heard from a physician once that said to, to a patient, they said, um, you need to be a normal teenager, but at the same time, go to bed at the same time every night and blah, 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 and all these other like restrictions. And it's like, now, wait a minute. Those two are not... You know, there's no overlap there. You know, normal teen, normal quote, if there is such a thing, teenagers don't go to bed at the same time every night. They, you know, they do other things. They eat a wider variety of foods, perhaps, or whatever it might be. Um, You know, so sometimes you can get advice that is really like, wait, what do I do with this? Because they just said two things that are really, you know, um, counter counterproductive or um, conflicting advice. So that can be hard. So then you really have to speak up again and say, well, what do you mean? be hard.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely it can. Um, Does anyone have anything else that they wanted to add? Is there anything that we did not cover today, Team Bendy Bodies? No, we're good? All right, well, what I heard today um, from these wise mouths was that if you excel at something until you don't, (laughs) and if it's all fine, until it isn't, (laughs) um, then it's okay to acknowledge that you might be different and it's okay for you to acknowledge your, your child might be different and need that extra help. And that's the time to start forming your wheel or your triangle and put your pit crew together. And it really only takes one person. Find one good person, whether it's your pediatrician or a PT who understands and listens or a ballet teacher who is really well-versed and can point you in the right direction, find that one person and then they can connect you with someone and they can connect you with someone and then you'll have your whole pit crew together. It's definitely not something you have to do by yourself and that's why we're here, Team Bendy Bodies, to help as well, so you can always send us questions and um, we would love to address those questions in another podcast. If people want to sit down and chat with us, we can do like a Zoom town hall and chat about that. Um, Or we can do a bendy bit if there's a specific topic you want to see covered. So please let us know what questions you have and we would love to cover them for you. You have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. And today we have been speaking with Team Bendy Bodies. We have Linda Bluestein, we have Aiden Leslie, we have Kristen Koskinen, and I am Jennifer Milner. We thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you everybody for coming on the podcast and for sharing your expertise with us. And we will see you guys another time.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Jen. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bendy Bodies with a Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes. Please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Remember to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the Bendy Bodies YouTube channel as well. Thank you for helping us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. Visit our website, www.bendybodies.org for more information. For a limited time, you could win an autographed copy of the popular textbook, Disjointed, navigating the diagnosis and management of hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorders, just by sharing what you love about the Bendy Bodies podcast. On Instagram, tag us at bendy underscore bodies, and on Facebook at Bendy Bodies Podcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-hosts and their guests. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. The thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. This podcast is intended for general education only and does not constitute medical advice. Your own individual situation may vary. Do not make any changes without first seeking your own individual care from your physician. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies Podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies Podcast was brought to you by Bauerfein Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.